Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonder and glory, the God who created and the God who saves. And we pray this morning as we think again about those wondrous things that you have done. We ask, Father, that you might take all distraction from us and help us not only to understand better what it is you have done, but to rejoice all the more in it. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we uh, continued our journey through Matthew's Gospel, we found ourselves at the foot of the cross, at the site called Golgotha, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Three crosses planted in the ground, two terrorists and an itinerant preacher from Galilee, and above his head the charge, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, inscribed for all to see and read. There'd been lots of crucifixions in Judea since the Romans had taken over. The soldiers had become quite practised at it. If they were to forestall riot and rebellion, they had to rule with an iron fist and they were up to the challenge. They were quite determined to see it through. But even they knew that this day everything was different. There had been an eerie darkness, earth tremors, the temple curtain torn from top to bottom, They'd never been frightened before when they'd crucified the enemies of Rome. But that day they were. And their leader, the centurion, had blurted out, truly, this was the Son of God. More was going on than those who were there could see. The hardened soldiers, the malicious accusers, those who looked on from a distance, even the centurion who uttered those words, none of them saw what was really happening at that moment. But it was clear that something, something out of the ordinary was in fact happening. It wasn't just the blood and the pain. That was usual, that was normal. It wasn't just the dreadful mismatch between the agony on the cross and the words of the inscription, this is the king of the Jews. How could you possibly make sense of that? Humiliated, utterly defeated royalty was all a cruel joke, surely. Unless something else was going on. Something much deeper and much more terrifying. This morning I want us to linger for a while before the cross. Let's not rush off too quickly toward the burial, the resurrection and the commission. What was going on as Jesus hung there dying? How do you make sense of the cross? Truly, this was the Son of God, but what did this really mean? Those were the questions the apostles needed to answer in the weeks, months and years after the event. And we need to answer them too if we're going to present the cross before the world. So I want us to linger before the cross a while while hearing voices from outside this gospel. So over the next three Fridays in chapel, I want us to stand at this point and see what was really going on. And the first of those voices comes from the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote to the Christians at the heart of the empire in Rome, He opened a window on what was really going on that day. As he unfolded the gospel, he wanted to preach to them when he finally arrived, reminding his readers of the cataclysm of human folly, 
suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, refusing God the honour that's due to him, worshipping the creature rather than the creator, running wholesale into futile thinking and perverse, unnatural behaviour, pointing the finger at others and failing to see the fingers pointed back at them. He concluded, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that was not all he concluded. So would you turn with me to Romans chapter 3? And let's start at verse 19. Romans 3 and verse 19. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become accountable to God, Therefore, by works of the law will no flesh be justified before him, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. But now God's righteousness has been made known apart from the law, though it was testified to by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness through the faith of Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the propitiation in his blood that God put forward through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of the passing over of former sins and the patience of God, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time in order that he might be just and the one who justifies the person who is of the faith of Jesus." To understand the astonishing thing that Paul is saying here about the cross, you need to look again full square at the cataclysm of human sin. Among all the things that Paul says about sin and the human predicament in the first three chapters of Romans, the most horrific is found in chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. The moment you speak of God's wrath, you've lost most of our contemporaries. The idea of an angry God is light years away from any notion of God that they're willing to accept. The critics outside the churches, it it smacks of ancient paganism. The angry gods who need to be placated by horrendous sacrifices. You can't count on them being on your side. You have to do whatever you can to bring them to your side. It led to the most atrocious behaviour in the name of religion. Child sacrifice, massacre and war, abuse. We left all that behind when we became civilised, didn't we? The picture of God you paint with words like wrath and sacrifice is one of a barbarian. That's the conclusion of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and Peter Fitzsimons and all the rest. But there are many critics within the churches too. You might remember the furor about an attempt to change the words to the hymn in Christ alone. Some of the Presbyterians in America apparently did not like till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I remember being at a general synod here in Australia where people refused to sing that hymn because they did not like that line. Any mention of wrath conflicted with the Bible's teaching that God is love, they said. It's not a picture of God they were willing to endorse in any way. 
Uncontrolled fury is the opposite of love. Of course, God's wrath is not capricious and uncontrolled. It's not a divine temper tantrum. It's not that from time to time God just loses it with human sin and sinfulness. Instead, it is the right and proper response of the holy and righteous God to the horror of human sin. It is God's measured and appropriate response to oppression, to abuse, to corruption, to atrocity, to callous indifference, and to a distortion of reality for the sake of self-interest. And when faced with these things, the wrath of God is, in fact, something that we often long for. Victims cry out for the wrath of God to be visited on the perpetrators of these things. Those who have seen what was done in the concentration camps or in the countryside in Ukraine. Those who watched people jumping to their deaths from the burning and collapsing World Trade Centres those who suffered abuse that mars their life forever, they don't want these things forgotten or merely papered over. They don't want us to pretend these things didn't happen. They don't want God to overlook those things. God's indifference would be even harder to bear. For God or anyone else to say, it doesn't matter, let's move on, just intensifies the pain. No, they hope and pray for the revelation of God's wrath. The day when those who do these things are held accountable, when everything is put right. Otherwise, it would all be for nothing. The measured, entirely right and proper response of the holy and righteous God to the horror of human sin. And because it is that, God's wrath mustn't be seen as the opposite of his love but a wonderful expression of that love. Yet it's still a terrifying thing. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews warns us, quoting the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. A little earlier, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We mustn't settle for a tame God, a, a domesticated God. The God who brought everything into being with just a word who upholds the universe, who knows the details of how many hairs are on your head and who encompasses both the beginning and the end in his purpose, to stand before him in judgment is a terrifying prospect. He knows what you kept hidden. Of course, we can't take comfort in the suggestion that it's only the tyrants and genocidal maniacs who are in the danger from God's wrath. Paul wrote to the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living with them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. He wrote something very similar to the Ephesians. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, 
but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, not just genocide, slander. Not just abuse and exploitation, covetousness. Not just terrorism, rape, pillage and murder, but evil desire and obscene talk and lies. You see, it's not only them, it's us. The most devastating threat of all to human existence is the right and proper searching, holy and pure outpouring of the wrath of God. Just read through the book of Revelation sometime. Now you've got to see the wrath of God like that. You've got to feel the full force and the weight of it. You've got to know that you're not exempt from it to understand how absolutely brilliant are Paul's words here in Romans 3. People just like us can be set in the right with God, justified before God, by God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the propitiation in his blood that God put forward through faith. And that's what was happening unseen at the cross. God's entirely free, unconditioned, uncoerced generosity to those who would never have deserved it, could never have deserved it. God's grace. A redemption, a buying back, a release accomplished at that moment by the one before whom the centurion stood that day, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the turning aside of God's wrath, dealing deeply and fully with God's wrath so that none of it is left for those who have faith in the crucified Messiah. Propitiation. Now, I'm quite sure you're very familiar with each of those words, grace, redemption, and propitiation. But it's worth thinking hard about the last of them this morning. There in verse 25, do you see it? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus... The propitiation in his blood that God put forward or that God provided through faith. The most important thing that Paul wants us to know about what was going on that day is that this was God at work. It was not just a man seeking to turn aside God's justly deserved wrath. This was God at work. Who put forward that propitiation? Who is it who confronts God's wrath and deals with it, not dismissing it or diverting it or overwhelming it, but exhausting it? Who drained the cup of God's wrath dry that day? It was God himself. God put forward this propitiation. There is no innocent third party, some lamb without a blemish taken from out there and then offered as a sacrifice, God takes the initiative himself. It is all top to bottom, front to back, all the way through God's work. God is both the subject and the object of this propitiation. God's own love and God's own wrath meet at this point. 
One man who uh, served as a military chaplain during World War II and who saw the ugly side of human life and behaviour up close, as you do in war, but who later went on to teach New Testament at the University of Durham. A man named Charles Cranfield put it this way. God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men and women and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, proposed to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. Friends, we'll never get to the bottom of that wonderful provision. We'll never master it or contain it or ever fully explain it. God dealing with his own wrath in a way that takes sin with deadly seriousness. God draining the cup of his own wrath in the person of his son. The son is not pitted against the father at this point. It can never be a matter of the loving son placating the angry father. What a gross and monstrous distortion. God himself put this propitiation forward Yes, it was Jesus who died that day and not the Father, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. But none of those watching on could see it. This most powerful and astonishing thing was happening at that moment. This is why the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. No more sacrifices were needed. It was a propitiation, a turning aside of wrath and the answer to our deepest and most urgent need. And all that was accomplished at that moment is simply received by faith. Faith, trust, the open hand of the person who knows they cannot do this but need it done for them. The propitiation in his blood that God put forward through faith. As Paul would say in the very next verse, this is what shows that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, there is a certain seriousness, a certain earnestness that is entirely appropriate in the Christian life. It doesn't squeeze out fun and joy and hope or anything like that, but it supports them from underneath, as it were. Knowing this, that the wrath of God is real and the wrath of God is entirely deserved, but the wrath of God was fully and finally dealt with, exhausted so that there is none of it left for us because of the propitiation that happened outside Jerusalem while the centurion wondered who this was who died like that. Once again, none of that was visible on that day. What they saw was strange atmospherics, but the usual course of events, a man died in agony. And how do you make sense of this? Truly, this was the Son of God. But if this is true, what was really going on? Well, what God himself tells us through Paul is that this is what was going on. The wrath of God was being dealt with so that I will never have to deal with it. 
but in a way that does not disregard it or minimize it or sidestep it. Whatever else the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is, it's this. It is the propitiation in his blood that God put forward through faith. So linger before the cross for a moment this morning. Stand amazed before a salvation won at such a price and by such a one. In this chilling inhumanity of that moment, God was wonderfully at work, strangely, astonishingly at work. And there is not a trace of God's wrath left for those who trust in Jesus. The most real and frightening threat facing every member of the human race is no longer a threat and it's no longer frightening for us. As Paul says in these verses, we can see that God is always right, even right, when he declares someone like me to be righteous because of this redemption, this propitiation, because of his blood. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you this morning for that propitiation that means we are free and we can live our lives with joy and excitement and laughter and know that we are your beloved people set in the right with you by what Jesus has done and have nothing to fear from your just wrath. Thank you for this message from your word for we ask it in Jesus' name.